You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast Hello and welcome to the show. My name's Stuart Goldsmith and this is the third of my series of four brought to you live from the Just For Last Festival in Montreal only last week. Now this, ladies and gentlemen, is probably the podcast I've been most excited about since I did the show. This is Patton Oswalt. So many exciting things happening in aluminum siding this year. Glad we could get together again for our 11th annual, uh, the AS. I just wanted to think of an acronym, and I totally. Oh, you blew it. No, headbutt. This is stars. Also, I love, the, I love the phrase, try to convince comedians that they're unhappy. Uh, yeah. that, that you would need to even attempt that. Well, some of them, some of them are. I, I think that. I'm going to try to get Keith Richards to have a drink. I'm going to somehow convince him to have some booze. We're going to start with, we've got loads to talk about, and okay. we're going to start with some of the things we were chatting about backstage yeah. that, that we kept going, put a pin in that, hang on, we'll okay, do that, okay. we'll open with that. So you've been to the UK in the past. Yes. Well, okay, uh, I've been to the UK, I've had a great time there, except for my debut, which was a nightmare. Um, this was back in 2000, I was at the Hammersmith in Shepherd's mm-hmm. Bush. The, the Hammersmith Apollo. Hey, thank you. The yes, one. the Hammersmith Apollo. That's the um, that's the UK version of the Apollo up in Harlem. I think they have a yeah. <laughs> they open a satellite room out in Hammersmith. That is exactly yeah. correct. So um, I was touring with Amy Mann and Michael Penn on this thing called Acoustic Vaudeville, and what it was was uh, you know Amy Mann, amazing singer songwriter, as is her husband Michael Penn. They love performing. They hate doing banter between songs. They just don't know how to talk about as they're tuning and stuff. So they would have comedians open for them and then come out and do their banter in between. And we would just say whatever we want. It made no, like, you know, this next song is about the fact that the ring-tailed squirrel is currently endangered. And if we, and then they would have to sing. Like, That's so beautiful. Yeah, it just it was, gives you license to come out and dick around. Just literally anything. I was in a really dark place when I wrote this next one. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and then it was just some happy tune about being in love. So... Uh, the, we, we, we get there and the, and they've done their sound check and everything's great. And so they, the, the, the house manager says, okay, we're going to have you go out. And I said, okay. Uh, so I, and you've, have you been on stage at the Hammersmith? I have, yes. Okay. So the, the way the lighting, it, it is a, it is a truly grand space and it's very intimidating in my mind. I'm, you know, this is the UK. I want to work here. I want to do well. So and the way, but the way the lights are, you just cannot see the audience. It is just it's a sheet of blackness, and then the stage. So I go out and I do a couple of bits, and I get nothing. And I not only when I say nothing, I don't I don't even get the weird like feet shuffling and <clears throat> that kind of. I mean, it's just silent. Just They're not making any noise, and it's really unnerving. And I'm so then I do that thing where and you've you've gone through this. All the the spit in your mouth dries up. You start talking a million miles a minute because now you're freaking out a little bit. And so I keep going. And then from the back of the room, I hear 
people starting to talk like they're talking to each other, which, again, is also silence. And then just pleasant conversation is terrifying. (laughs) Just people going, well, we'll just wait for this guy to be done. Where should we get dinner after that? Like like you're just not there. And the talking starts moving down towards the front of the room for and gets louder and louder and louder. And I'm just flipping. And I've not I can't stress this enough to you. I have not gotten a laugh. There has not been a single, not even one, like, ah, like, like a polite anything, just, just pleasant conversation at a cocktail party. And then at the very, very end of my set, I did my closing bit, and I got just the most polite kind of, uh, the, the bare minimum laugh. And then I go, okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, Amy and Michael will be out of here in two seconds, so thanks a lot for coming out. And I put the mic in the stand, and I come off stage, and the house manager goes, uh, Okay, well, they're almost done seating, and we'll wait another 10 minutes, and then, um, well, you can go out. And I go, what do you mean they're almost done seating? He goes, oh, yeah, I, um, I opened the doors five minutes into your set. I said, I'm sorry, what? He goes, I, he goes you went out there. And I couldn't see what the audience was. So in his mind, and, and again, I don't think he had any malice towards it, but there are people, in their mind, comedy is just ambient music. You just walk in. But what it meant was an audience entered the Hammersmith Apollo, and there's just this lunatic up on stage, finished, like finishing a joke that they haven't even heard. Like It lo- almost looked like the janitor had wandered up there. you know, And, and that's why Count Chocula's pro-life. <laughs> And it's like, what the fuck? Don't, don't say anything to that I poor really, guy, you know. I really hope there is a, a venue manager podcast and somewhere that, in the world he is telling the other half of this story right now. That's, let me tell you the worst comedian one. we, yeah. Or he's going, let me tell you the worst comedian we ever had. He went on there. I gave him a five-minute head start and then the audience walks in. But they all just came down and they settled in and they were, again, it's a British audience. They're very polite. And they, no one was mean to me, which, again, if someone had just even acknowledged, like, what the fuck are you doing? I could have it maybe spoken to them, but as it was, I just had this. So that was my UK premiere. And then I was, and then, but then luckily we went after that to um, Galway and Dublin, and those audiences were amazing. There and, is, and present. And not only present, <laughs> and I'm going to say something that I hope doesn't piss any of the comedians in the room off because I could not be more anti-heckling. I'm anti-heckling. And the and Irish audiences are the exception that prove the rule. They know, you know, like when hecklers go, I was just trying to help the show. And that's, oh, you're like, you fucking, that doesn't help the show. Irish hecklers will help your show. They know how to heckle. And I don't know, There maybe there needs to be some Irish heckler that teaches a clinic to American <laughs> audiences to help them focus. Hey, let me show you how an Irish heckler helps a show. I was, uh, again, doing Amy and Michael's banter. I was at the Abbey. Yeah, place the Abbey. And so every time I would go on stage, I would come back out to do banter. Someone would hand me up a Guinness at the lip of the stage. So... I, in the space of about a two-hour show, I had 11 Guinnesses. <laughs> I drank 11 Guinnesses. And then um, they did two encores. So for each encore, I was given a Guinness. So for the second encore, I went back out. And now I, I've been handed up my 13th Guinness. And I go to the mic, and I say, this is my 13th Guinness of the night. And the guy in the audience went, pussy! <laughs> and it was so, like, that's perfect. Like, that was the perfect button. It actually helped. I laughed. So, are you uh, are you in a position now as a comic where, and I feel like over listening to your last five albums, mm-hmm. I feel like over the last ten years that I that certainly that I've listened to those albums. I don't know if that exactly replicates the time, uh-huh. but but I feel like I've heard you grow as a comic and grow as a person. And you're talking about getting married, and then you're talking about wanting a kid or not wanting a kid, and then having yeah. a kid. Are you now in a position where you are? I don't want to use the word an elder statesman of comedy, but you're someone who, like, you're you're getting. We're at the Just for Last Festival. You're receiving an award for being the best guy. I think they're giving me that just to get me to come up here. I don't think that that (laughs) is any. I don't think that's any indication of merit at this point. So, but 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 that's it was nice of them. But you're in you're in a situation now where comedy to you is a very different thing than comedy is to a lot of working comedians at the moment. Do you, th- do you think that's right? You're seeing well, yeah, it from I a... Mean, yeah, it, it is a different thing for me because, 
and and any you know uh, any young working comic will will can tell you this as well. You are if you're present on stage about what is going on with you right now. I look at my albums and stand up comedy and my specials as issues of a magazine. So you do you want to see how I was in 2003? Listen to feeling kind of patent. It's a total portrait of I'm young. I'm never getting married. Fuck children. I I drink seven scotches during the show. I'm I'm just it, it's just like listening to this train wreck. And then in the in the in the next one, I'm about to get married. I'm a little nervous about it, but it's going. Then I'm a dad. So you're seeing it's it's it, it'll be like so when people say. Um, Hey, you were saying your first album, you said A, B, and C, and now you've done A, B, and C. It's like, do you find issues of Time magazine from 1976 and then write them a letter? Excuse me, Jimmy Carter is not president. Uh, I don't know if you know. I just read your 1976 issue, and and I think there's been a couple of presidents, you know. So, uh, yeah, comedy is a different thing for me now at age 46 in the year 2015, and in the year 2020, it'll be whatever I say to you now will be totally null and void. I'll be on to something. I mean, and I hope it is. I hope I'm not still up there doing... It would be really sad if I hit the... If I reach the age of 50 and I'm still like, kids are bullshit and here's another thing about Star Wars. And you know, people are just like, the fuck happened to this guy? This he's, Aren't you 50? So, yeah, stuff should change. I, you should change while you do it. I, I noticed something. I was reading uh, Silver Screen Fiend. Um, your, still uh, available. Still available book in, in electronic bookstores and yes. real, real ones as well. <laughs> and real ones. Um, All three of them. You you were talking about being with uh, Louis C.K. in Toomla in oh, Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah. And you said that you were, because that was earlier, much earlier on in your career, and you said that you felt like the big ideas that he was saying in simple ways, I'm, I'm paraphrasing probably badly, you were saying that the, the big ideas that he was saying in simple ways made you feel really terrible about the way that you used or deliberately ornate vocabulary and cultural references. Well, yeah, because I was young and I was super insecure and I was trying to prove how you can always tell, not always, there are some um, young comedians, you know, people like Kyle Kinane and, and Morgan Murphy and people like that, that they are so raw from the get go that it makes someone like me jealous when I look back at how insecure I was and how I was trying really hard. Because when I was a really young comedian, if you notice, all my comedy is about this is stupid. And here's a, another situation where I had the perfect thing to say. And, you know, look how amazing and smart I am. And it's not at least for me, this isn't true for every comedian, but it's not till you get older that you get secure enough up on stage to just go, all right, listen, let me tell you about this stupid fucking thing I did. And, you know, and you're, you're willing to explore some maybe dangerous or unpopular ideas or maybe just go, how will you make that funny? Well, I'll find a way. I've been doing this, you know. Um, there's, a, um, there's a British writer named Alan Moore, and, uh, and he said something really interesting, which was... Um, uh, you know, people when people call me a genius, I think genius gets overused a lot these days because stuff is so mediocre that if you're actually good at something, people go, "You're a genius," you know, because mm. things are so crappy. He goes, "I'm not a genius, but I'm an excellent writer because I've done it every day of my life for 30 years. I'd better be good at this point." People go, "You don't outline?" He goes, "No, no, not anymore. I can, you know, I can just kind of start. I've done it enough." So Louis, at that point, and also, you know, Louis had only been doing it a couple, few more years than me. He's just so much more advanced than I was. He could talk in much bigger, simpler ideas without all the pop culture frills and bells and distractions that I was using, and the you know the twenty five cent words and the the sub reference, sub reference, sub reference to show you how it was almost like I was trying to scare people into laughing at me, like I don't want to look stupid, you know, like like <laughs> in case my joke didn't work. And then I would watch people like like you know Louis and and Dave Chappelle. They just they get at these much bigger cosmic truths with really really simple language yeah. it's just you know that as you get older just what you do i just read um stephen king's book Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, and i hadn't yeah. read any stephen king in a, in a while and i was just stunned at how i mean i loved him coming up but you read his early stuff and he is trying to make his fucking name and throwing everything out there and now he's confident to i know how to tell this story with just the most i know how to hit things with the biggest impact using the littlest gestures so, you know that, but that's you don't get that till by until you do it for a long time well i, re- I remember when i read that i i thought to myself oh that's I, I sort of felt i was disappointed i was like oh no the the ornate language 
I really like the Onyx language. The, fa- <laughs> the stuff that you're doing with the cultural references, it is multi-layered and it has loads of... You know, there's, there's lots of stuff to it. it. It didn't seem to me to be as, as cheap as you were describing. Well, I mean, I, I'm a little better now, and I, I think, I hope, I can spot the difference between using ornate language and sub-references um, where, where it's coming from actually something personal and emotional uh, as to the difference when I'm using it to prop up maybe not the most well-thought-out bit. Okay. You know, yeah. I, I remember I was, I, I remember this very early on, and this was when I was, I had literally been doing it for two years. I was driving to a gig with a uh, a comedian named Tony Woods out of D.C. Really, you guys know who Tony Woods is? So he was telling me this story about this. He goes, I want to do this joke tonight about, and he had literally had a fight with his girlfriend who was the mother of his child like that day, and he had thrown something at her in, in rage, and it almost hit her, but it almost hit the baby, and then the baby started crying. It was this really dark complicated story and and me i was i think i was like 19 i was like how are you gonna make that funny and he he just said i'm a funny motherfucker man like i'll find a way you know so and by the way i read the the afterward to stephen king's 11 22 63 and he said i i the first version of this novel i wrote this in 1978 yeah and i realized i don't have the tools yet to do this i haven't hit this point so he put it in the in a have you, have, have you got equivalent bits? Could you recognize anything from your most recent album or from the stuff you're going to do yeah. tonight where you think, oh, actually, this is something that I've, I've had to put down and come back to? There was a bit on my last album um, about... No, wait a minute. There, no, not because that... There was a very, very specific bit that I tried doing a version of very early on, and I could not... Now I can't think of what it is. There was another bit that I was working on for my last album that I dropped out of it because it wasn't there yet. I don't, about why do mega celebrities go crazy? And I was trying to link it to like, can you, maybe does reality start to warp at that point? So that's why you burn your life down. But it was just, I didn't have the, I don't have the, I just haven't aged into that bit yet. I just wasn't okay. ready. Well, the um, very, very early on in my career, uh, before I did my first album, there were versions of the Black Angus bit that I kept trying to build, and it just never, ever clicked. And then it finally did. It finally remind me of the. I feel like I know your work very well, and I don't remember which bit. Well, Black it's about Angus. the commercials where there's a there's a chain restaurant. You you probably have the equivalents in the UK. It's these chain restaurants where the the appeal of the restaurant is not that the food is good. It's that the food is a lot of food. That, that's the why you come in there. So this uh, place, Black Angus, and I mean, I do an exaggeration, but it's not that exaggerated where they, you know, we start you off with our yeah. um, deep fry. They scoop out a pumpkin and fill it with shrimp and then dip the whole thing in. It's just, and it goes on and on and on and yeah, on. Yeah. And I had seen stuff like that on the road as a comedian. I was like, this is, they're just, they're literally... This this restaurant could be an alien spaceship, and they're fattening up humans. And at the end of the night, they're just going to rise up and just slaughter them all. It looks like feed pens for you know for how to fatten up people. But I could never find the approach. And then years later, I finally figured that out. So I mean, there's got to be communities in the room where you've got something where you're like, I know there's something there, and I can't. Fuck, it just doesn't. Does anyone have that? You know what I'm talking about? Well, just you know. Get, Think of an equivalent of a drawer, the writer's drawer. Just file it away and keep chipping at it. It will come. And sometimes it'll just come because you get older and you'll go, oh, that's what I'll, you know, that's what mm. it is. So. Something I've noticed that is a, a real skill of yours is in taking, like, like, just that kind of analogy, taking an existing situation and finding a ludicrous, not necessarily science fiction <laughs> oriented, right. but like a good example would be the bit about singing in your car. So oh, I, that yeah. is a very, like, I don't think I've, ever heard a bit which has as much made me go oh for christ's sake i do that all the time why didn't i come up with that so the the, the, the premise if you like the, like the sort of the first premise is that you sing when you're in your car and you sing a load of nonsense and it would be insane if anyone heard it right and then you take that and nest it within the idea that that would like because that that's a, a you know an interesting and funny observation mm-hmm. but you always seem to kind of go one further and instead nest that within the idea that this would be the tape played at the CIA Christmas party, <laughs> if they were wiretapping you, <laughs> get the newest Oswald. We got, yeah, because exactly. well, I mean, the, if you're a, especially if you're in show business, there is a narcissistic element 
to your head and to your thinking of I'm the star of this movie in your mind. I am building this artistic career. And now that I'm uh, uh, there's a podcast called Rejoice about uh, the writing of Ulysses and you get into, you know, but you realize that Joyce, James Joyce kind of lived the same way. Like, oh, I'm the hero of this movie and this will all. And he was a complete prick to everyone he knew. I try not to be a prick to people, but there are those days when I'm going, this is going to be a scene that will get replayed later on in the, okay. the Pat Oswalt story. Because you can't not – you can't help to think that way sometimes. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in show business. So, did that, so I'm like, what if that – go ahead. Sorry, so, well, no, no. I just wanted to ask. So did that, did that aspect of that bit occur to you at the same time? Did you, did you clock oh, that, yeah. okay, I'm singing in my car, that's one <clears> thing. And then later on, you're like, oh, that would be interesting. Or did you go, I'm singing in my car, why am I doing this? Oh, and why am I noticing it? And it's almost like, a, did you make, was that a multiple observation that came to you? Yeah, and it also came to me from, you know, I was really, really paralyzed by a lot of my bad um, aspects that I just did not like about myself. I didn't like my competitiveness. I didn't like um, this egotistical, you know, I am the center of the universe and here's how I'm thinking of it. And, you know, and what, and, and it was really making me not want to even. Um, function because I was just like I'm a, I'm a dick like I'm the bad guy in this if if this is how I can't I literally can't stop thinking that way and then I was talking to my shrink and he said yeah everyone everyone that's artistic thinks that way that's how you get to the artistic stuff you got to wink at that shit and make fun of it okay. you can't let it paralyze you so then that gave me that insight was like okay so now let's look at some of my dickish behavior and what if I What's the funny part about it? And, you know, and then it helped me control it. And that was one of the very first moments when I was driving. I mean, I, and I still do when I drive in my car. I just, I make the most nonsensical. It, it is crazy. And then I'm just, why hasn't someone put a, or if, if, again, that's my thinking. Well, you know, if the CIA were to tap my car, and really, I'm a, I'm a dangerous, crucial comedian, wouldn't they do? Like, in my <laughs> head, I'm going to spark the revolution with my bits about Black Angus. <laughs> so, of course, they put a mic in my car. The FBI file on me, just, it's my picture, and then dilettante. That's all it is. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, what if I take that to the extreme? Okay. You know? Is that, and but, then also I took the, the extreme you said, which was then I'd become a celebrity within the CIA listening post of, yeah. like, we got a new Oswald. You got to hear it. So, is yeah. there is there um, because obviously when you do that bit, part of the reason people are laughing before you get to the CIA element mm-hmm. is they're laughing with recognition at the observation that they do that they themselves also do that in their cars. Yes, and I think that's another um, another risky but really rewarding thing that comedians do. A lot of times, and again, comedians in the room back me up. I'm sure you've done this. You throw out a premise, um, a to get laughs, but b to also go. Hey, I'm not alone in this shit, right? Like, yeah, I just right. want to make sure. So when you throw that out and the audience all starts laughing, you're like, thank God I'm not fucking Like, oh, God, I thought I was crazy. But Absolutely. when they all start laughing, you're like, oh, good, okay. I'm okay, thank God. Whew. So, yeah, that was that was one of those bits that I kind of throw that out. Like, does anyone okay. else think this way? Okay. And, yeah. And, and let's look at the writing, at the creation of those bits. From the moment when you have that observation, mm-hmm. are you the sort of, or... or how has, how has it developed over the last 20 or so years? Are you the sort of person that will just maintain, keep that idea, keep a note of that idea, and then talk it through on stage? Yes. Or, and, and then go away and edit it? Because some of the stuff seems to me to be so densely written and so full of punchlines and so full of paradigm shifts that we get another laugh from when the perspective changes again uh-huh. that I just think to myself... I mean, I, I've listened to it going, you, you, that cannot have tumbled out. See, it, it, it's... I wish, I so wish I could say I sit with a notebook and, and I write my stuff out. I wish I had that kind of discipline. It doesn't come tumbling out, but it gets teased out night after night. So whenever you see me perform, there are bits that are just there, but you also will see the process of new bit, and it's this constant um, uh, cycle of, of bits becoming really solid, and then I get bored with them because I know they're going to work and there's no risk anymore, and they begin to phase out. So each album and special, I try to time it where I'm at the peak, new stuff, I've got 45 minutes of stuff that I'm, I know will work, and then I begin folding in the new stuff, and I'm like, might work, might not, I, you okay. know, so, but yeah, and I wish I could say, because um, some of my favorite comedians sit and they write their stuff out, and it is gorgeous, but I, it's teased out bit by bit. Okay, so just to use a different example, so another of my favourite bits, when you're talking about jock rocking your life, (laughs) 
And so you're singing to yourself. That, that was another thing that I, it was almost like what those bits, that and the, and the inside the car thing, those are almost a form of prayer where I'm saying a prayer from there. It's like, would someone else yeah, just back abs- me up absolutely. on this, please? So that I'm not, so that was another thing. And when I do it, people are like, fuck, I do. And when I, when I but, hear that recognition of the audience, it calms me down. But, so. but specifically the examples you use. So the, the premise, the setup is that you, you find yourself singing along in a kind of cod <laughs> jock rock style. <laughs> and you do three examples. One of which is eating a sleeve of saltines in my bathrobe. Underwear. Watching, what, in my underwear, watching Carlito's way. Yeah. And that just killed me because like that's the Carlito's way is the perfect choice of movie because it's always on it's, it's and exactly. you always watch it it is one of those TBS TNT why it's four o'clock on a Sunday yeah so why is this well of course it's on and you never see it from the beginning you just turn it in halfway <laughs> and you're kind of eating crackers you're like this is an hour of just nothing I'm getting nothing from this so so my question is did is Carlito's way something that came out on stage or is like you used a kind of other film first and then you went away and went what's the perfect film <clears throat> I think it was as I was doing it on stage it almost came to me subconsciously I in my head I went to sitting on the couch in my underwear and then just Carlito's way of course yeah. was on the in the vision that's what would come on you know it's almost yeah. like if 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 I had done that bit in the 70s it would have been either Soul Train or The Longest Yard what is always on TV on the weekends for some reason okay. and for some reason Carlito's Way just so and, it's, a, it's and, about <clears throat> experiencing like putting yourself imaginatively in the moment and filling in as much detail as possible yes and the fact that when I say Carlito's Way and the audience goes oh shit I think I've done that That's, yeah. you know, or they recognize Carlito's Way I've seen that so yeah that's okay. happened to me on a Sunday so this is Patton I don't think I've ever been happier as a podcaster than when Patton walked into the uh, the green room backstage and I'm there biting my nails, wondering if he's going to turn up, freaking out about doing someone who's legitimately my absolute comedy hero. And he walked in and it was just, it's just he and I in the room for 10 minutes beforehand, but he walked in without a handler or an agent or anything else. And he looked at me and he just went, Stuart. And that, the way he said it seemed to go, look, I know you're excited about this. Don't worry. It's all going to be fine. We went on to have just the most fun. I, I love this episode and I hope you're enjoying it too. You can follow Patton on Twitter at Patton Oswalt. You can go to his website. If you're not familiar with his work, and I have to accept he doesn't have an enormous profile in the UK. I hope this way this show goes some way towards rectifying that. Um, he's enormously famous in the UK amongst the alt comedy scene. He did Comedians of Comedy. Uh, he's in the current series of Veep. Um, he's done five or possibly six albums now. And every single one of them is an absolute gem. So look him up on iTunes, look him up online uh, and let yourselves discover just how exciting and how magnetic his comedy is. Uh, I he's, he's up there with my absolute favourites. I would say top three of all time. So grateful to Patton, to, uh, to Patton for coming along and very grateful for you for listening to this one. I'd like this one really to be massive. So more so than any previous show, if you're listening, wherever you're listening, if you're in the States, if you're in New Zealand, Australia or the UK, wherever you are, please share this one with a friend. I'm so proud of this episode and I really want as many people to hear it as possible. If you know any Americans, let's use this as, a, as the first leg in an onslaught on America. If you know any American comedy fans, not comics, and comics as well, why not? Then share this one on their Facebook pages, send them an email, direct them to this show, because I think they really are going to appreciate this uh, as much as I did, and uh, as much as I hope, and I think actually Patton did as well. So that's enough fawning for now. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. Uh, Remember, the Phoenix Fringe is happening all this week up until the 8th of August in London. Uh, So you can go along to the Phoenix Fringe and find out more information at phoenixfringe.co.uk. That's got people like Milton Jones, Ardlow Hanlon, Shappy Corsandi, Kerry Godleyman. If you're in London, you absolutely shouldn't miss that. If you're in Edinburgh, please come along and see my own show, An Hour. Uh, That is happening every day at 4.55 at the Cannons Gate. It's a free show under PBH's Free Fringe. So come along to that and get there early on the assumption that it's absolutely wildly rammed every day. Uh, And there is a bunch of live podcasts happening, of course, up at the Edinburgh Festival uh, for the second two weeks, the final two weeks of the festival. Festival. I'll be doing some live comedians, comedians uh, with people like John Lloyd, Tommy Tiernan, uh, Ronnie Cheng, Catherine Ryan, Daniel Sloss, Jason Byrne, loads and loads of people. So come along and see those absolutely free as well. 
That's everything I need to tell you. Thank you to everyone for donating. Much appreciated. Your donations keep this show alive and uh, they're really important to me. That's the only income I, I make from this show is, uh, is you supporting it busking style um, by, uh, by crowdsourcing, as Amanda Palmer would have it. Uh, you can go to comedianscomedian.com, click on the PayPal donate button and you can donate whatever you think this show is worth to you. If you're a student, chuck us a couple of bucks. If you are an employed person, uh, why not throw me five, ten, twenty pounds or the dollar equivalent? Uh, and if you're someone who's an absolutely rabid fan of this show and you've listened to every episode and downloaded them all to CD and played them in your car, uh, if you're obsessive, like I know a lot of you are, then feel free to just drop me however much money you want. Um, that's your way of saying thank you. And uh, this is my way. And the, the continuing uh, production of these shows is my way of saying thank you for supporting it. I really appreciate it. A little thing beeps on my phone whenever I get a donation. And uh, my heart beeps every time someone finds me at a gig, says something cool and presses some cash into my hand. So feel free to do that as well. Uh, your donations pay for the people who can't afford to donate. And they're what keeps this show going. And they it, it's making me so happy. It's making me so happy that you like it. You want to support it and you say nice things about it to me. If you can't donate, just share it with a friend. Give us a five star rating on iTunes or just send me an email. Info at comedianscomedian.com telling me if the show has made a difference to you. I think 21 is the current running total of people who've started doing comedy. This show has just given them the nudge to, to start it themselves. Um, so feel free. And remember, if you're one of those 21, the rule is that 10 years time when you're playing arenas, you book me for support. Hashtag Goldsmith for O2 Tour Support 2025. Um, so that's all for now. Let's get back to the final section of this episode with the absolutely sublime Patton Oswald. <laughs> what kind of what kind of uh, things in your writing speaking as someone who like we've already we've already described that, that idea of the florid language you feeling you need mm-hmm. to make sure you don't overdo that or or kind of spot yourself doing it well um, what, what other kind of uh, tropes are there that you catch yourself doing what sort of habits do you have as a writer that you need to keep an eye on that's weird i was just starting to make a list of those because i'm, I'm very very aware there is when you find stuff that works, there's a safety element to it that you want to go back to. So using um, <clears throat> using emotions as nouns, uh, when, when I describe the KFC um, uh, famous bowl or whatever that a thing is. Failure f- bowl failure, in a sadness a, a, pile or something. A sadness pile and a yeah. failure bowl. So just the idea of sadness as a, as an as a noun um, you know, a sadness. Well, that was an adjective, but then I've also, so I'm just very aware of falling back on that okay. as a, just a, okay, I'm, I'm going to equate something with a massive, massive emotion. And then also certain movies that I always subconsciously reference, Blade Runner, Star Wars, The Road Warrior comes up a lot yeah, yeah. in stuff. Um, Brian Dennehy came up a lot for some reason. <laughs> he just did. So I'm very aware of it and I'd make sure not to put him in there anymore. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I think the word douche nozzle yep. uh, showed up in a couple albums. So just and, and again, if I may quote Alan Moore again, once you recognize a thing, either in yourself or when you see other people quote when they when they quote you or talk about you, they go, "Well, he'll talk about A, B, or C." You've got to get rid of those things immediately. You have to you have to do without them and form new. Uh, new strengths. It's are, hard, but you got to do it. Are there are there kind of like there's, you've isolated, you identified a number of words there. <laughs> yeah, I are know. There, are there kind of kind of in the bigger picture? Are there sort of kind of joke formats or particular structures that you find yourself returning to? Hmm. Wow, that's a good. Um, I, you know, one structure that I'd use a lot. I, I just really like it because I love the turn aspect of it. Is you back into something. Without you, you say a premise that is not an immediate lead to anything. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
you can't tell where this is going to go. So like me saying the word like robots or I, I start a bit where I literally I end a bit and then non non sequiturally non sequit that makes um, no sense non sequitous yeah sequitous sequitous or I'll just go robots or the or the bit about G rated filth where I just add it with no setup just go I want to. Fuck your hot puss. And I'm leading up yes. to it, but I like the shock of what the hell is this? And then you turn it into. I had a whole opening like that, I think, where I just said, Remember when you were a little kid playing games and they would say the boundaries are lava? And, 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 and there's no joke. I, I, that's the thing of how long can I go without any obvious joke? And then you twist it and then it gets a huge laugh. Like I want to see how long that can go. Okay. So that's a thing. And I, it's on my. Um, the the last album too about the uh, my my daughter watching the uh, the Wolfman remake, yeah, uh, with, and I'm all afraid that I've scarred her for life. And it ta- and it's it's a it's a pleasant story, but there's like there's where is the joke here? And then uh, it, there's just it's it's almost like the the idea of like the squirrel at the side of the highway going, how do I get a thrill? I'm going to run out and try not to get killed. Yes. So how long can I take them before they get you know they turn on me? And then you you turn it and get a laugh. That okay. to me that's just so fun. I wonder. I, I heard on an, on another podcast, which I'm uh, I will find out which one it was, and duly credited. But someone told <laughs> you are us, the James Lipton of interviewing comedians. You do your research, man. Thank you very much. I mean, I'm serious. Can, can Say, someone? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I've been on podcasts where the host is literally scrolling through my IMDb. So you were. I'll edit all this out in so. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, though, the, I, I think it was, you weren't on the podcast, it was another comic talking about a thing, a piece of advice you'd given them. And the piece of advice was to make the moment of, to, I'm going to try and get it right, to, that there be a moment of realisation inside the story. And as yes. soon as I heard that, I was like, oh my God, and every bit of your stuff I listened to after that, I went, there's one, there's another one. It, and well, it's not just as simple as, and then I realized, but it's, it's taking like an existing situation or uh-huh. emotion and then pulling back from it and putting it in a, not just a wider bit, but a wider... It's the, and, and this took me some time to learn. There's, there's a couple of bits in my first album that I would love to almost revisit and pull back into a wider realization about it. But in other words, instead of making fun of something, going, this is stupid, just pull back a couple of steps and either find out what's great about this horrible thing and embrace what's great until you strangle it and make a, get a laugh that way or pull back and then look at why am I so obsessed with this? Why yes. am I the reason? And um, I think why, it was... Uh, why am I bothering to talk about yeah, it? Well, yeah, why, why is, is this... I mean, it, does it mean that they've won if I've... I mean, that's the realization I come to in, in Silver Screen Fiend that I don't come to it in my George Lucas bit on my second album, which is, yes, the prequels were terrible. I've spent months talking about them with my friends, with people online. I don't think I've created any piece of work, good or bad, that's caused this amount of discussion yet. So, you know, who's the loser here? Who's the artist? So, you know, keep pulling back and asking those questions. I think that's what's really, that makes comedy really fun. What was the first bit that you wrote that you thought, this is who I am? That you went, this is it, I found me. Fuck. Yeah, because you know what? There were some early bits, and I bet a lot of comedians in the room could cop to this. There, I, there were, I had early bits that worked, but they were, had nothing to do with me. Yeah. It was just, oh, I know this will work. I know this will I think maybe the first bit that I wrote that really was like, okay, this isn't just me going, well, this is stupid. You know, me actually finding delight in something beautiful or or trying to find something funny and human in something kind of ugly was in, I did a bit about, there was a a American TV show called Cops. Mm -hmm. And for some reason in the early seasons of that show, and if you go back, you'll see this, it's a little disturbing. They really seemed to, have a fetish for busting guys with prostitutes and then telling the guy, telling the John that the prostitute that they were with was a guy. And they would do this over and over again. It was like this weird, and here we come. And, and so I talk about the guys, and usually these guys are just these 
macho, like redneck dudes. And they're then being told they were making out with a dude. And the realization coming over their face, there was something so, and I do that, like the face as he's realizing it, that there was something kind of beautiful about that, that, oh, as, as awful as, as, you know, maybe this is to you because of your very narrow upbringing, whether you like it or not, doors and windows are being kicked open in your head and maybe you'll become a better person, you know? So, so that was the first time that, and I remember I did that on my very first special and there was another joke that I did in that special that the director said, you know, this joke, I know this gets a laugh, but it has nothing to do with you. It, all it is is just a clever turn of phrase, but it's not you up there. And the joke was, I like my women like I like my coffee tied up in a sack and thrown in the back of a donkey by Juan Valdez, <laughs> which it's very clever, but anybody can make that joke. There's nothing yes. about me in it. And, and the other thing is, you're talking about an experience you had, albeit you're watching television, so I don't know how much of an experience it is, but you're thinking, you're trying to sympathize with someone else, you know, that other people would normally just dismiss or go, ah, what a fucking loser. You're like, well, wait a minute, let's, you know. So that was the beginning to me of maybe let's try to have more empathy and look into other people's, look at it from their experience and then get bigger laughs that way. There's a bit of yours where you uh, talk about the open mics when there's, there's the guy on heroin who mm. keeps phasing in and out of... It's, an incre- it's a great story. Dr. Pepper. Yeah. So uh, the, the phrase, would you, you wouldn't give a crippled crab a crutch. This is stuck with me. That's not a real phrase. You made that up. No, so no, that, he said it. Incredible. You but, wouldn't give a crippled crab a crutch. <laughs> oh, isn't that gorgeous? And then that's gorgeous. The way that rolls, oh, it's like a Wallace Stevens poem. It'd be so happy. <laughs> Sorry, go when ahead. You, when you when you're doing that bit, you talk about you identify the three different types of comics at the open mic. Yes. Him being one, the insane lunatic. The first group you mention is those who are going to make it and get somewhere, yeah. and then the middle group is they're funny, but who gives a fuck? Right. And it, it came up in a conversation I, I was interviewing Moshe Kasher yesterday. Oh, nice. And he said that we talked about that concept and that bit, and we were talking about. Whether or not, I mean, he describes it as intrigue, whether there's something, that's the difference between a comic we, we give a fuck that's about a and it is a great isn't. way to put it, yeah. yeah. There's no, yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no intrigue in that second category of the guy that it's, it's a man or woman that's gone up and, and they know beforehand that this stuff will work. It's like there are certain summer tentpole movies where there's no intrigue. They've literally, you, you can tell they've crunched the numbers beforehand and say, we have this many foreign sales. We hit these eight or nine scenes that we know everybody wants to see. We will make our money back. This is a calculated product. There's no, you know, whereas other movies are like, wow, they really rolled the dice on this one. So I think that's the difference too with, there are certain comedians where you go, that person is not there right now. Hmm. They are they are delivering jokes, but these are can't miss concepts that no you know I mean no one no one's going to like piss themselves laughing at it, but no one will not laugh at it. It'll just be oh exactly yes, very you know and and so it's it's the person that goes out on a limb and takes the risk or or and you also you you watch somebody forming it's you know I. You feel like, oh, I almost want to follow this person and see what happens. Mm. That there's something going on up there. I was intrigued. That's a great way to put it. We were most most yeah. term for it, but we were wondering. I was wondering whether it's possible to. I, I think he was talking about recognizing that he had some intriguing quality before he really had any kind of good material, and he was being told he was taking too many risks. And we were thinking. What if you are someone, if you're a comic listening to this who, who feels that they're in that second category of like, I'm funny, but who gives a fuck? Uh-huh. Is there any way you can break out of that or are you doomed to be intrigueless? What is oh, that yeah, risk because, that you can hey, take? I broke out of that. I was a funny, but who gives a fuck comedian for the first four years of my career. I was terrible. I mean, I was getting steady gigs. It was all, the stuff was working, but there was nothing. You would never leave one of those, the first four years of my career, you would never leave one of my shows and go, I got to follow that. I got to see that guy again. You just go, well, that was funny. Now what? Like you would, you would, you would have forgot me the second you stopped seeing me. And then what happened for me was, and I think this is the difference between some comedians. I moved to San Francisco. This is in the summer of 92. And I did an open mic at a place called the Holy City Zoo. And in the room were people like Greg Barrett, Greg Proops, Margaret Cho, um, Lank and Earl, just these people doing this amazing 
risky, weird, really funny stuff. And I went up and I did my A-plus yeah. road material, and I ate it in front of people that had just – I had just watched for two hours who destroyed me. And then so it was this – it was this total um, – uh, if I may bring up James Joyce again, but there's a there's a moment at the end of his short story, The Dead, uh, which is one of the best stories you'll ever read. But there's this guy who's this very full of himself, and he's a singer, and he has this wife, and he's like, well, the wife loves me, and I'm a huge celebrity, and everyone kind of worships me, and I've got this amazing future ahead of me, and I have all these dark levels to me, and he's just very, very full of himself. And then at the end of the story, his wife is crying, and he's like, what is going? And then she, it, she tells him out of the blue this story about this young boy, Michael Fury, that was in love with her when she was living out in the country and kind of died for her, and she's never forgotten him. And it immediately shrinks him like he never thought his wife had any other dimensions than to just be an appendage and a decoration for him. And he actually realizes, I'm not the star of this story. I'm the appendage. She has the bigger depths so it was this moment in the holy city zoo for me where i was this i'm this up and coming i kill all the time i do great i'm in this room wow hey these people are really fucking good well well you know they see my shit because this is awesome and then to have that totally like oh wow i am not not only am i not the center of anything i have i'm four years behind Mm. what the cutting edge is and it was this really great wake-up call for me that I'm really glad I had. Um, But I think there's some comedians that they get that wake-up call and they either recoil in horror from it and um, or worse, they dig their heels in twice as hard with the shit they're doing and become successful doing their shit. And they think, well, if I make a million dollars doing this shit, then they'll respect me. Mm -hmm. And then they end up even more furious because the truly artistic and risk taking are like fine, I you know have your million dollars. I don't want to do what you're doing, you know. And then they really get pissed off. So there's that, you know, if you're really, really willing. And you know, again, I'm, I'm talking like that was my big epiphany, and I was okay. From, that shit happens to me all the time, and I hope it never fucking stops. You know, I was very, very much against. A lot of, um, especially now these past couple of years, I've had this very cool education as far as like trans issues and race issues and um, uh, misogyny and and all these different levels of things that I thought I had. Well, I you know I'm totally progressive and liberal. I've got all this shit checked off. I know where I stand. But then when you talk to other people and you keep seeing these new viewpoints, mm-hmm. you keep getting shaken up. And if you stop getting shaken up, then you're just kind of done as an artist. Yeah. So I think every few years the the structure has to collapse and you have to go, oh, I didn't know shit about any of it. And then you got to keep rebuilding. I think that's what's really good. When you when you had that moment of going, holy shit, the, the holy city zoo moment of going, yeah. this is yeah, this is uh, yeah, I'm doing I, completely this the is wrong gonna thing. Sound, this is going to sound like it didn't happen, but it did. I went across the street to a restaurant called Taiwan on Clement Street. I had my notebook and I tore pages, all the pages out of my notebook that had my jokes on it, and I threw them in the trash, and then I had like 15 pages of blank pages left, and then I just wrote, um, because it was May 5th, so I wrote May 6th, 1992, and got up the next day and just started writing all new bits. And what like, were the difference in those bits? Were you writing those bits? I want to see what, I want to find out exactly what changed. You were, okay, you write another bit, you write a new bit, but how is that different to the bit you've just thrown away? How is what it do more I, true? What, what do I think is funny rather than, okay, what is going to guaranteed make an audience laugh? What is the audience thinking? I stopped thinking about what the audience was thinking. And I also stopped, I started respecting them a lot more. That was the weird thing. In what, what The minute I stopped thinking about what the audience wanted, I ended up respecting them way more. Because then what I did was I treated them like they were intelligent. They, oh, they'll, just, they'll just shift gears and go along with what I'm going to, and they always rose to the occasion. Now, not that I'm saying that I brought this extra level of intelligence. I mean that I would just brought this honesty like, hey, here's this thing I was thinking of and here it is. And they always went, okay, let's go with it. Because you just started having a little more confidence in that. Right? Don't run from the truth. Um, I, for the benefit of the listeners, someone just tried to leave. Yeah. Um, so a juggler just stomped out angrily. <laughs> I'm kidding. It was horrible. 
Jugglers, jugglers are the backbone of our industry. Reg- regular listeners to the podcast will know that I myself am <laughs> quite quite an accomplished oh, juggler. Oh, you a juggler? Oh shit! It's, uh, it's are my you? old life. It's my old life cat. We don't talk about it. Oh. I almost never bring it up. Fuck! <laughs> not oh on stage. Not, not, in a, not as a comedian. Not, oh. prof- not professionally since I became. It would be great if I said that, and then like you look, and like three juggling balls like roll out, and it's like, oh, and we pull, and there's like a little tear. I get, I get three <laughs> circular tears tattooed on my chin. <laughs> Talking of those kind of, like, my early years hacking out kind of street shows, your early years hacking mm-hmm. out uh, pre-Holy City Zoo revelation, pre oh. that Night Cafe moment, um, were they worth anything besides money in your pocket, confidence? I, I've, I have a pet theory that comedians end up... We want to work hard. We see that if you work hard, there are career advantages. But a lot of us end up working, and this is, is my stupid way of describing it, rather than working hard, we end up just working much. Yeah. I mean, we just end up... You can yeah, feel like you're a, working. If you've got an eight-hour road trip, you can go, well, that's today's work. Well, a lot of people also, they, they confuse struggle with work. They think, well, look at me. I'm struggling, trying so fucking hard. Why don't you just... I'm, why don't you I'm just... currently turning to glass and shattering. I think I've done that for my entire life. Oh, well, I mean, I, I do too, but I have to keep reminding myself, why don't you just, like, work smart rather than create all this struggle because no one gives a fuck about your struggle yeah just work smart and you know again get to back down to the here's the great thing about those four years of just doing and i did every the mechanics and the reality of going on stage didn't mean anything to me so it was much easier for me to then jettison everything and start fresh because i was no longer thinking about going on stage yeah you know it's like um i'm trying to think of an example of a a great artist that started off well okay you know the beatles um one of the reasons they were so amazing was because they did eight hour shows every day at a hamburg strip club before they ever were the beatles so they had and just cranking out i mean they do compete imagine you have to entertain angry Germans that are waiting to see tits, and you have got to somehow hold yourself up there. And they were playing any song they could think of. So by the time it was ready for them to write their own shit, they're like, we've got all that stuff out of the way. I know every court. I, I know how to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now I'm ready to start you know, doing this. So you know, there's a great you – know, there, there is total value in just going up and just cranking it out sometimes. That will lead to you know, doing it. Is there is there any danger? Do you think in you becoming like this is it's something you see with a lot of uh, very popular comedians that the the sort of the starting point of a comedian is to be an outsider. And yes. the more successful you become, the more you become an insider. Yeah. People, you over two million followers on Twitter. People respect your opinion about things, and actually, you're you're no longer on the outside of culture looking no. in. You are the culture. Yeah, and and you also have access to stuff you used to make fun of. So it's very hard for you, like, there are certain maybe items of pop culture you would like to trash, but you're like, four of my friends are in that. Yeah. And I kind of can't do, you know, it's really <laughs> weird. It is really, you know, um, so yeah, there have been moments when, oh, yeah, but, but again, you know, you just have to be honest with your situation. And, and also, you know, I, I hope when I'm older, I'm not still just totally focused on pop culture and also you find better ways to you learn uh you pick better targets you know because yeah when, when you're coming up and you're like oh this it, it's hard for me one thing it's very hard for me to do is to make fun of movies with the abandon that i used to because i've either been in movies or i know people that make them and i know even the shittiest movie people have to break their backs to make it mm. so it's really hard even to, even deathbed <laughs> You know what? I I was contacted by the actual carpenter that built the deathbed for that movie. He's this old guy. He still exists, and um, yeah, and he and he still runs a carpenter. He goes, I worked really hard on that bed. Like I wanted to make it look nice. He was like, because he was going, I'm I'm making something for a movie. I'm going to do a good job. And so it was. I can't really go look at this fucking loser. He yeah. really did work hard. So you know. So then just to, before we wrap up, just talking about your transition into being a movie actor. Again, you, you go into a lot of detail of the early days of your, your movie acting in <laughs> yeah, your book. my movie acting. Yeah. My early days down. By the way, uh, when I flew here yesterday, it was on the plane. Me, Rob Schneider, and Harlan Williams were like, is this a down periscope reunion going on? <laughs> and I said, if Rip Torn gets in this plane, I'm getting off because it's going to crash. <laughs> 
But you, uh, in your stand-up, you talked about there's a, a routine about turning down constant offers to play the gay best friend. Yeah, so, I had a couple of those offers. Well, it's just that I was, you know, I, I have a lot of gay friends, and uh, and and when you when you hang out with them for as long as I have, <coughs> and you see that how again they are just as complex and complicated. Mm. Um, as as any other person, and then you read a script, and they're literally written as a pet. They're just a pet, and it's so gross. And you're just like, I can't. This is there's this is just. Why don't I just play something in blackface if we're going to be this, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, dismissive and reductive? So yeah, there are been. And again, when I say I'm turning, it's only been in the last couple of years that I've had the. Uh, um, luxury of turning down a role you know i've taken some i've done a lot of shitty stuff so there's you know it's not like i'm going please i i'm curating i i want a perfect imdb you know no i'm not i'm not going for the john cazal five for five but um you know there are there are there should be some you always should exert some choice sometimes mm. it was just hard for me I, I wasn't even judging the movie it was just like i know that that this thing i'm about to play doesn't exist you know like i'm not, I'm not if i was doing a fantasy movie i'm not gonna go i'm sorry there are no werewolves i can't play a werewolf but the these these gay eunuch friends that are just there to help out a, a, some white girl find love it's just bullshit i just oh i just hate that so much in movies, and is there is there an element that you your your stand up following? You need to kind of what am I asking? It's about integrity, I guess, and it's it's just about whether that the fact that you're a successful comedian who does openly hate and be disgusted by things. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's a yeah, yeah. process for you, whether it's on Twitter or whether it's on. Well, sometimes also you've got to be very. I mean, again, it comes down to being totally honest. There's a bit on my last. Uh, album where I talk about I did a I I hoard myself out to a casino. Yeah, holy shit! And I am very open about I did it. And there you go. And you gotta you know. So yeah, you, there's th- this is ultimately a business. You have to. I don't want. By the way, I'm never um, judgmental of my friends when they take work. You have to work. I don't want to see people. And again, a lot of the work that I do, like. I remember early on on some message boards, there were some real comedy periods going, you should have quit King of Queens after that pilot and told him to go fuck himself and worked in a bookstore. And then I was like, well, if I had done that, <laughs> no comedians of comedy, yep. no, like all the stuff that I was able to finance myself, all the, that was all King of Queens money. That paid for the stuff that I wanted to do. So why do, I don't know why people have to see the artists that they revere go through a hard time and continue to go through it. Because, you know, for the most part, unless I'm like... Yeah, there, we don't want our artists to be happy. I mean, our good artists. Well, we, yeah, I think but, because they can, we connect with them maybe at times when we're unhappy. And if yeah, we then I, see them swanking around... No, but I wasn't using the King of Queens money to buy a, a, a swimming pool in the shape of no, Bill of Hicks's course. head. You know, I was like using it <laughs> that to later. do this... You know, this, um, this That's the this, Ratatouille money. There you... Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's so that you can have and have more freedom to travel and do things on your own terms so you know that's and again and yes if that sounds like a justification it is a fucking justification we go through that shit all the time and i'm telling you young communities you will all come to that crossroads you will all come and you will all fail like i did (laughs) there are no howard rourke's in this room and do not read the fucking fountainhead it'll screw you up i read the fountainhead on the set of down periscope it was the biggest mistake i've ever made why the what the fuck was i thinking i was like "I, i gotta burn this studio down no be happy you're getting your sag card you idiot <laughs> i've got i've got two more subjects and we'll have okay, to sorry. cover them very very quickly yeah, yeah um not you know you don't need to apologize no. um one of the things as i mentioned at the beginning one of the my obsession obsessions with this podcast is how people cope how comedians cope with the various troubling aspects of comedy with the isolation oh, yeah. with life on the road and the rest of it and i'm very fond of ambushing people and saying are you happy i look i i'm i'm happy but i'm i'm happy for a really this is going to sound kind of selfish, but um, and I've always there, I know there's the stereotype of the the comedian crying into the cracked mirror in the Motel Six, you know, <laughs> while Eric Carmen's all by myself is playing on a <laughs> on a fuzzy AM radio. But um, 
I'm really fucking happy because I picked a profession where I get to hang out with comedians. I hang out with the source of jokes. I'm not hearing it the second day at the office after someone watched it on a TV show the night before. I'm with people. I'm on the factory floor. I'm watching the stuff get created. So ever since I've been able to make a living just doing stand-up, and I mean like I I think uh, in, in early on, I think I made like $14,000 in one year. And I was like, it was barely enough. I could like pay my rent and feed myself and keep my car running. I was totally happy. I'm like, this is great. I don't have to go to an office. So I've been, everything else is, is just gravy. I'm never, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit bummed if I'm on the road too long and I'm away from my wife and daughter. I, I like being home with them. But when I'm on the road, I'm, I'm with a comedian. I know usually, and I get to watch them and I get, you know, so that, and all my friends are fucking comedians. It's great. And the ones that are sourpusses, I just avoid them. So but, it's perfect. But does the, the instinct, or did the instinct to become, the drive to become a comedian, was that intended, do you think now, looking back, was that intended to heal something within you? And if it was, did it work? I don't know, but I think that, I mean, my, the only thing I need healing is just the fact that I moved around so much as a kid. So there was a lot of that, you know, um, kind of being in new places a lot. But And, and yeah, I used humor to cope, but... For the most part, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess I, you know, I, I said this before in a, in a little short film, you know, you want to be loved and understood, but I think that's, I think everyone's kind of has that plight on some level. Um, I just, I'm particularly aware of it when I speak to comics who work as hard as you have and mm-hmm. do, who are driven like that. Well, I'm also driven because I want to, I want to get to a point of power and comfort um, where I can start, I, I just there's other things I want to execute. Yeah. I have a lot of stuff that I've conceived, but I don't really have the means to execute it yet. So, the, so my drive is to get to a point where I can execute what I conceive. And so, there's a lot of stuff in terms of television and films and stuff like that. But then also, you know, I want to um, say the reason I did comedians of comedy. I want to facilitate. I see, I just I I cannot stress to you and anyone listening the field of stand-ups coming up right now like the young the younger generation is fucking staggering they're so the talent level is is otherworldly so if there's anything if i can stay maybe not even relevant but just successful enough that i can you know oh this guy opens for me and that she opens for me like and get more voices out there it just makes the makes it more fun for me if if you keep really intriguing, intelligent people going, then it, it, it kind of ups the bar for everyone. But if you don't do that, so there's also part of that too. I also, I just love doing stand-up. I like getting on stage and performing. So doing movies and TV is so that I still have the cachet that people want to come see me. And I don't have to depend on going to a, to a comedy club on a Wednesday to do nonstop radio and then mm. work with some guy that I don't know. Like, I like to build my own shows. And not that, look, I still do comedy clubs, but there's a certain way of doing it that's, that's, that can get depressing, and I don't want that to happen. That's, like, one of my big fears, is that I'm suddenly in, you know, well, when you're at, the, when you're at Cranberries here in West Virginia, we always have the yeah. morning guy, the dog, come in and opens up for the comedian. You're like, oh, fuck, this you is like... always stay in the yeah. fog hotel. And let's yep. uh, yeah, let's stay off of politics. Uh, let's yep. uh, you can talk about Obama if you're mean to him. And you, you know, you're just like, oh fuck, I can't. So I never want to have to deal with that shit. So finally, then your your ambition all the way through the uh, through the Silver Screen Fiend, and you mentioned there as well, making short films. You yeah. want to direct? Yes. So where are we with that? Where are you with that? At the moment? We are. Uh, oh god, still um, kind I'm of projecting back to you the energy no. of you in that book. Come on, Fatten, come on. I know. Um, I'm I'm gonna uh, make some short films a little later this year. I'm like writing little scripts and stuff, uh, but no real big inroads right now. I mean, it's you know I'm, I'm still. It's summertime. My daughter's about to start kindergarten. I'm kind of focused on that. Um, I'm also kind of realizing that there are friends of mine that I can just go, hey, I have an idea for a film, let's go do it, and I can go do it. I just, there's always, it's going to just come down to, you know, it took me a year to get on stage as a comedian. I was like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out, and then I would start watching com- comedy, and then I just did it. So it, it will come down to that, I'm just going to start shooting something, and it'll probably suck, and then I'll make something else, and it'll be, then just go that way. It'll just, it, the thing will just, ha- it will happen, but I've stopped trying to figure out when, but it will, ha- and it'll happen this year. I won't let 
2015 perish without having made something on film. Okay, that's my only goal. Well, I'll hold you to it. The, ve- the very uh, uh, this is a this is a comedian's comedian. Uh, qu- final question. Look, a very final, quick one. Okay, what would you have on your comedy gravestone? On my comedy gravestone, um, God, I want to think of something funny. Um, I mean, that sort of works. Oh, no, you know, uh, I want to think of something. <laughs> oh, I just thought of something. How about a, uh, there's my light. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. All right. Yeah, that, no, 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 it, that's only the comedians laughing at that. And yeah, the, exactly. the regular folks are like, don't Everyone get else it. like, I didn't and know he was a Christian. That's, that's weird. Exactly. <laughs> no, I thought it was an atheist. That's, that's weird. exactly how it should be. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> please join me in thanking Pat Oswald. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> So that was Patton. Thank you so much to Patton for coming on the show. Thanks to you for listening to it, for sharing it with your friends uh, and for supporting this podcast as you do with uh, with your time, your energy, your feedback to other people, your recommendations and on occasion your financial support via the, the PayPal button at comedianscomedian.com. It's all very, very much appreciated. I love this episode. I properly pinged around the place on adrenaline afterwards. Uh, Patton's manager came up to me uh, later that evening and told me how much uh, he'd enjoyed it and how much Patton had enjoyed it. And it just really started to feel like I'm putting, just dipping a toe into the the waters of uh, American podcasting. So if you're in America, please feel free to herald this, share it around the place and bang on about it until people are genuinely annoyed at you. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Nathan Wood for co-producing this show. Tomorrow, the final live podcast from Just for Laughs in Montreal will come out, and that is with the wonderful Andy Kindler. Again, not an enormous profile in the UK, very, very well known and respected in America and Canada, and with good reason. He's been in the business for an age, and he absolutely knows his stuff. We're going to talk about um, uh, the Hacks Handbook that uh, was a satirical thing Andy created in the early 90s. Um, and uh, I, I will include, in fact, a link from that to find uh, a PDF where you can download the Hacks Handbook. It's very, very funny. And it's it's frightening how similar it is to our list of new hacks that used to be on the ComCom page. Uh, you can tweet me at ComComPod, email me info at comedianscomedian.com, or check out the webpage to comment on this site and continue the discussion on Facebook. Feel free to do that. Thanks for listening. I'm going to have a little sit down and reflect on this with uh, with some sort of glass of booze. Speak to you soon. <laughs>